when the, the news broke that this hospital had been targeted by Israel, you know, I think the three or four different and incorrect videos were shared by well-connected Israelis, including the Israel account, which is run by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Now, why would these official Israeli accounts be just sharing unverified, unsubstantiated, uncorroborated videos? They're literally undermining their own argument later on, or their so-called technical argument that this must have been an Islamic jihad. Right? So not only are they muddying the waters, they're also undermining their own credibility. But crucially, this muddying the waters is, is beneficial to them because what it means, again, is that there's doubt. There's doubt about uh, what happened. And in this case, the event, if it transpires that 500 people, 300 people uh, were killed by a deliberate Israeli attack on a hospital, as you can see, the outcome of that has already been that there's been massive protests around the world. Joe Biden has basically been disinvited from his trip to the Middle East because this will mobilize public opinion in a way that's genuinely problematic for, for, for the US. But if this narrative can be tempered, if it can be made ambiguous, if it can be somehow less clear that this was a, an unequivocal Israeli attack, then that kind of protest, that pressure, that political pressure will decrease. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Mark Owen-Jones. Mark is an associate professor at the Hamad bin Khalifa University in Qatar and the author of Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East and Political Repression in Bahrain. Mark joined me to explain the violence that is currently happening in Palestine and Israel. The reality that that violence is the result of a settler state colonizing another people's lands, keeping them under blockade illegally for 17 years, and weaponizing the support of their Western allies to get away with some of the worst crimes against humanity we have seen. Mark explains how the Israeli government weaponizes propaganda in order to spin narratives, drum up support, muddy the debate, and obfuscate the reality of Palestinian suffering. He explains the power structures and geopolitical relationships that ensure the continuation and justification of Israeli violence. He explains how the Western media mediate the lens through which the public perceive this violence, creating a story that seemingly has two equal sides portrayed as a war rather than a heavily armed modern state going up against a group of civilians. We discuss at length the hospital bombing that occurred on Tuesday night and the incredible pace at which the story went from certainty that it was an Israeli airstrike after an advisor to Netanyahu's government had claimed so, to now the uncertainty with which everybody is treating the story since Israel changed its tune and put the blame on Palestinians themselves. And we end with Mark explaining how Israel's violence against Palestine, despite Hamas's actions, is simply vengeance and ethnic cleansing. Opening up the question, will the world order that currently sees Western powers dominate the world stage survive a public opinion that is waking up to its tactics? 
Given the level of McCarthyism right now in the West, which included the Ofcom director in the United Kingdom being suspended for posting her support for Palestine on her private Instagram account, companies in the United States demanding a list of pro-Palestine student organisations and the members of those organisations so as to discriminate against those students in any future hiring pools, and the violence being perpetrated between civilians due to the escalating tensions in the Middle East. I feel compelled to make some clarifying statements. The first is that when Mark and I discuss the Israeli state throughout this episode, we mean the authoritarian Zionist regime, not a group of people who represent any cultural values. We are not discussing a religious war, as Republican senators like to refer to it, but colonization, resource theft, and authoritarianism. Just as the vast majority of Jews in Israel believe that the blood spilled over the past week and a half is on the hands of Netanyahu, their prime minister, the fascism of his government does not represent the majority opinion around the world. While civilians all over the globe march for peace and unity, Netanyahu's government calls for genocide, referring to Palestinians as the children of the dark, as human animals, and calling for their destruction. This episode details the Western hypocrisy which ensures Israel can get away with this kind of rhetoric and with this kind of violence when most other countries are invaded for much less, let alone propped up by the world's superpowers. My heart goes out to everyone living under the threat of violence all over the world right now. The atrocities committed by Hamas and the Israeli army must never be forgotten. Violence is very rarely justified. The Israeli people and Palestinian people are victims of politics. A politics that goes back over a century. A politics of colonization, entitlement, arrogance, and Western exceptionalism. However, whilst the powerful are quick to proclaim Israel's right to defend herself, those same people who defiantly defend the right to bear arms in the United States should recognize the right to resist oppression. There is only one way out of this, a ceasefire and an end to the siege of Gaza and the humane treatment of the people who have called that land their home for millennia. Hamas has been calling for a ceasefire for 24 hours now, saying that they will release all hostages in exchange. It is Israel that continues to drop bombs. The settler state does not agree, much like their allies who voted against a ceasefire on Monday. Finding the truth is increasingly difficult in a post-truth world. But as Nate Higgins pointed out on his most recent Frankly episode, 50-65% to 65 of the world's remaining oil reserves are in the Middle East, and Israel is the West's only stronghold. As Iran calls on every Arab nation to implement an oil and gas embargo against the nations that support Israel, is the ideological veil used to justify violence in the name of democracy around the world being ripped away to show the truth of the resource wars, driving the politics of a colonial world order. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Mark, thank you very much for taking the time to join me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Nice to, uh, nice to, I don't know, cast with you, whatever the verb is. <laughs> nice to cast with me. On oh, not a very nice topic, though. No, unfortunately not. 
The first question normally on Planet Critical is why is the world in crisis? But given the particular events going on right now in uh, Palestine, I would like to ask you, you know, why is the Middle East in crisis? Why is Palestine in crisis? I mean, in a Palestine's always been in crisis, but what's going on now is pretty simple. You have an apartheid state, an occupying force, engaging in ethnic cleansing of an open-air prison. Uh, and this has escalated most recently because Hamas, who are the political authority in Gaza, which is a small coastal enclave, I'm sure most of you know, um, that has been subject to an Israeli blockade and siege for, for, for many years. And obviously on the 7th of October, uh, members of Hamas engaged in a cross-border raid, uh, killing numbers of civilians. I think the number's now estimated to be over a thousand, although I don't know how accurate these figures are because I don't know if they've been independently verified. This is, I say provoked, I don't like to use the term provoked. This has given Israel a justification for launching what is actually an unprecedented attack on uh, Gaza Strip. Uh, including uh, dropping over 4,000 bombs uh, on residential buildings. And they are now preparing and laying the way for a ground invasion of Gaza, which will further increase the number of deaths. And I think at the moment, the number of civilian casualties in Gaza is estimated to be about 3,000. It might have increased rapidly since last night, uh, where there were reportedly hundreds of deaths uh, after Israel bombed a hospital. Although the facts around what actually happened remained a little unclear. Right. Let's zoom out a little bit as sure. well um, and talk about the geopolitical situation in the Middle East, because yeah. Israel receives, I think it's $4 billion a year from the United States. Mm. It is uh, one of the United States sort of firmest allies. Uh, they also have support from uh, the UK, from the European Union. How is it that um, they can create an open air prison in a small enclave, uh, have a blockade for 17 years that is illegal and still receive all of this support from Western powers? Um, well, because for some reason, well, I say for some reason, I'll hopefully provide you some of that reasoning, uh, the UK and the US in particular see Israel as a key strategic partner in the Middle East. They see Israel as a reliable ally. And there's also polit political and cultural factors playing into particularly the US's support for Israel. Uh, much of this is part, or some of this is to do with uh, Israeli lobbying in the U.S. Uh, some of it is to do with Christian Zionism, which is also pretty prevalent in the U.S. Uh, but I think the large part is uh, strategic, you know. Um, the U.S. and to an extent the U.K. want a reliable ally who is on the Mediterranean coast, who has access to coastal waters. Uh, they want uh, a reliable partner in who is in opposition to Iran and can contain Iran. But also there's deep cultural and social links, you know, uh, Israel is a settler colonial estate, and many of the settler colonists there have, are from European backgrounds. So I think that's also an important part. And let's not forget that, you know, Israel itself was a product of the UN and the UK in particular uh, in, you know, the 1940s, right? So British had the mandate in Palestine. They were responsible for Palestine, but they also bore a lot of responsibility in creating the plan that essentially allowed for uh, what it was at the time Jewish immigration to Israel. And, and they supported Israel ever since, as has the U.S. I believe the U.S. was the first to, uh, country to recognize Israel. So, you know, these, the, the history of the support has gone back for uh, a long, long time. It's not likely to change. It's very much embedded in British and U.S. politics. And I think there's also this massive, uh, you know, political pressure to also support Israel. People who have been critical of Israel in British politics, for example, I can say Jeremy Corbyn, 
have basically been branded anti-Semitic for their criticism and legitimate criticism of Palestine. And many politicians who criticize Israel get labeled with uh, the, the, the moniker, you know, anti-Semitic, which is obviously incredibly unfair. And there's this, this is often a propaganda tactic to brand people who criticize Israel as anti-Semitic, right? But they're obviously two very different things. So I think there's a lot going on here you know, in terms of the reasons for that support. Uh, but the support for Israel is unwavering, and I would argue that European support and uh, U.S. support, now with von der Leyen's uh, seeming individual support, Germany's support, is is one of the reasons that they've been able to sustain Gaza as an open pr uh, prison for so long, because Israel know that in order to conduct that kind of um, apartheid state, they need international backing, and they have that. I think it's a really good moment to also now compare um, how the European Union and the United States, NATO essentially responded to yeah. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, yeah. uh, providing Ukraine with supplies, with unwavering support, um, saying that cutting off water and electricity to the civilians was a war crime and illegal under international law, which is what Israel has been doing uh, for over a week and a half now and intermittently over the past 17 years, controlling the resources that are coming in and out of uh, Gaza. And not one Western leader, uh, elected leader, has stood up and said that that is a war crime. Mm. Fortunately, Spain's social minister said that they want to take Netanyahu to court over this. Yeah. Um, but this silence has been deafening. I mean, the hypocrisy, some people don't like to uh, highlight the comparison with Ukraine. And I have never really understood why, because I think some people feel that they can't actually fully explain it. And, and you're right, there has been this unwavering support for Ukraine. Um, because, and, and most people see this as entirely legitimate, that Ukraine has been invaded by another power uh, and that that power is then an occupying force. Uh, as you rightly said, uh, von der Leyen in particular has highlighted how cutting off electricity and engaging in these, uh, the same practices Russia and Israel engage in are considered war crimes, but she only mentioned that in context of Russia and threatening to Russia. And I remember when she said it, people were replying to her, so saying, what about Gaza? And she has not condemned that. And this kind of rank hypocrisy is exactly the kind of thing uh, that I think alienates a lot of people who support human rights in Europe, but it's, it's part of the course. And, you know, you can see, you can see also this narrative evident in the condemnation of attacks on civilians. Anyone who supports Palestinian resistance, legitimate resistance to occupation often gets asked or demanded at the beginning of any conversation about this to condemn Israel, right? To condemn Israel. You know, the Palestinian, Palestinian representative of the UK uh, was objecting to this on BBC saying, why do you always call? Why do you ask me to come in and condemn Hamas and condemn Palestinians and you never ask the Israelis to do it? Uh, this is absolutely truthful. But the fact of the matter is, you know, Zelensky and one of his, his ministers have, uh, have all but basically said that it's fine to target civilians and that's a fair and just process, right? Uh, this was in response to Ukrainian drone attacks on Moscow, literally talking about targeting civilians. Yeah, that gets swept under the rug, gets brushed under the carpet, however you want to talk about it. Uh, but with Palestine, the focus, the overwhelming media focus is actually on acts of violence perpetrated by Hamas and Palestinians, right? So the media is playing a role in shifting the narrative and the focus and, and politicians are doing the same by only highlighting, you know, these egregious human rights violations when Russia conducts them, but not when the Israelis conduct them. So I think the comparison, the timing of what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Palestine is really making people aware of the sheer hypocrisy about Western support for Israel. And it's an apartheid state. It's an apartheid state. I mean, Amnesty International have declared as much. It's an occupying state. That's not in dispute. They're in violation of international law and have been historically. Right? None of these are up for dispute. Right? This is not something that we need to debate about. 
Uh, so what do you do when those facts are very clear? You ignore them. <laughs> yeah, you gaslight the entire world. Yeah, you, it would seem. <laughs> gaslight the oppressed. So I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. South, Af South Africa's um, president, president, prime minister. The current. Former. Current, yes. Um, I can't remember his name. He came out and said uh, last week that it's an apartheid state. And who better to speak on that than the leader of South Africa? Um, also, I think a good uh, moment to throw in that on the the day before mm. um, this hospital bombing that we'll get into, um, there was a vote in the UN Security Council about a ceasefire and the four countries that voted against a ceasefire were the United Kingdom, the United States, France and Japan. Japan haven't really gotten to the bottom of that one Um but those other colonial powers, it's completely comprehensible. And yet they don't seem to be taking any kind of accountability for their continued role in supporting Israel and therefore justifying its what activists are now calling genocidal mission in Palestine. Well, what accountability is there? I mean, as you said yourself, you know, you have some of these most powerful states to support Israel on the Security Council. The U.S. is de facto Israel's representative on the Security Council. And anytime, and historically this is true when it comes to, uh, you know, passing, you know, resolutions that are condemning or, or, or prohibitive to Israel in some form of way, the U.S. usually raises their veto card, right? So how can we have trans accountability for Israel when you have this structural system that basically favors Israeli's allies? And let's not forget as well in international law, you know, Israel having ratified the Rome Statute, right? They're able to egregiously engage in these human rights violations without formal mechanisms of uh, legal accountability being applicable to them, right? Um, Sorry, what is the Rome Statute? Can you explain so that? The Rome Statute, basically, signatories of the Rome Statute would uh, then um, be liable to be taken to the International Criminal Court for prosecution for things like crimes against humanity. Um, and obviously, many countries don't sign it because it basically facilitates the process by which they can be held accountable in international law. The US, I don't believe, has signed it. That tells you everything you need Shocking. to know. Yeah, right. Shocker. So it's, it's, you know, and again, with international law, it's always a political process anyway. But I think it just goes to show that Israel, for all its talk of having the most moral army in the world and being the quote-unquote only democracy in the Middle East, again, the U.S. Uh, is very, very scared of basically putting its name to these forms of legislation that could actually result in accountability. So I think that's always important to bear in mind. Let's talk about how the media have been helping Empire. Let's call it Empire, if you if you will, if you will indulge me, has been helping Imp Empire. Imperium, sorry. Empire, whatever. I mean, it's Imperium. I like that. The Roman. Let's talk about how the media is um, Imperium's cavalry <laughs> right now. Um, not just the not the first line of defense, not the last line of defense, but the guys that come out from the side and just punch in the uh, the opposing army mm. out of nowhere. What have you seen? Um, over the past week and a half? There's a lot going on. I mean, I can talk about the legacy media, I can talk about Western media, and I can talk about social media. And obviously these systems interact. There is so much going on. So firstly, let's talk about Western media, right? Because this traditionally, or Western media traditionally, have played a very important role in mediating the conflict. They operate as the lens through which many constituents in Europe and the US view the crisis. And if that lens only really presents a particular side of the story, then people in democracies are going to consume an inherently pro-Israeli narrative, right? Which again, in theory, makes them elect and support leaders who engage in anti-Palestinian activity. Um, and, you know, this is also, you know, this is highlighted in, in a lot of the reporting about it. 
Um, you know, it's even in the language of passive voice, you know, you know, Palestinians were killed, whereas, you know, is, uh, is Palestinians killed Israelis? Uh, you know, Shireen Abu Akleh, the journalist who was murdered by an Israeli soldier last year, you have the, the Israeli, you know, comms officers. They know what to do. They know immediately to say that she might have been killed by a Palestinian government. Gunmen, send that to the Guardian immediately. So when the Guardian reports on it, in, in, you know, in, in, in line of uh, journalistic principles of reporting both sides, they will include in their headline that, you know, journalists shot, Israeli officials say it might have been a Palestinian gunman. Obviously, no, it's nonsense. So there's all these kind of reporting elements going on. There's also the fact that Israel, remember, have besieged Gaza. They control their electricity. They control their water. They control their mobile phone network, sewage. And they control their media. And by that, I mean, they allow reporters in and out. Right now, journalists can't get out, right? And they do that because they don't want people bearing witness to the real uh, genocide that is taking place there, right? So there's kind of all these structural levels of manipulation. Um, and, you know, I think there's also just the, the, that, that general kind of US bias towards Israel that manifests itself through, through media outlets. And so Palestinians never get fairly represented. I mean, I did a, a, a quick study of front pages of UK papers uh, over the past 10 days. Daily Mail, obviously right-wing paper, but, you know, still, it still should be subject to criticism. None of the days in the past 10 days did it mention Palestinian victims on the front page, but it dedicated a significant proportion of the news coverage to talking about Israeli victims. Not that Israeli victims aren't valid, but what about the Palestinians, right? What about those civilians? Don't they deserve a front page uh, because thousands and thousands have died? And if you asked anyone now based on, you know, US or British media coverage, how many people have been killed in, the, in Palestine since 2000? I'm sure many people wouldn't know. But the figure it, since 2008 is what, over 6,000 Palestinians killed and 300 Israelis. Uh, but you would never know that looking at the media because, like I said, the front page just focuses on the deaths of Israelis. And... Sorry, How I was going to talk about social media. Sorry, I, I paused. <laughs> I naturally paused. Well, well, let's 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 yeah. take a little pause here and have like a very difficult conversation. How is it that this spiral of silence is created? How is it that journalists fall in line with a party line or a certain bias that's reflected in politics, then gets reflected back? I mean, it's kind of a hall of mirrors, right? And no. I think that. There is a huge amount of uproar, certainly on my Twitter feed, I'm sure on your Twitter feed Absolutely. as well, um, from citizen journalists and campaigners and activists who are highlighting the hypocrisy of mainstream media. who are also um, calling their role in mm. facilitating now this genocide, especially after the hospital bombing, which we will get into. Mm. Um, and I know that uh, Keir Starmer um, and Thornbury, David Lamy, they've all been threatened um, uh, to get taken to court for, for breaking the Geneva Convention. Um, I don't that. But, how, but how does it happen? I mean, these journalists are not, we're not run by an evil cabal. You know, there's not an evil group of people no, no, sort of making up the narrative. Um, so how is it that people who are meant to be reporting on the facts fall prey to sort of perpetuating these narratives? Well, some of the examples I mentioned actually fall within normal journalistic standards and what would be arguably good journalistic standards. I mentioned an example with the killing of Shireen Abu Akhala. It's pretty standard when you have an event like that, a murdered journalist in Palestine, to get, quote unquote, both sides of the story, right? The Israeli side and, you know, the Palestinian side. You're obliged to do that in many ways. Uh, in this case, we know historically that the Israeli side when it comes to issues in Palestine, lie, there's no two ways about it, right? So if you're obliged by standard practice to report the lie and the people telling the lie are actually very efficient in delivering that lie, 
then you're going to structure that story about the killing of a journalist in a way that muddies the water. It's not that you're engaging in any sort of sinister or nefarious plotting, but that's the case. I mean, that's just one example. There's obviously multiple structures in which this news is filtered, but I think now in a social media age, and, and, and this has existed before social media, is intimidation. We know that the Israel lobby is very active in uh, you know, threatening uh, with legal action or other forms of action, news outlets that uh, you know, are very critical of Israel. Um, you know, we saw, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's not a journalist, but we saw what happened to him, uh, you know, and he was ruthlessly targeted. But on social media now, social media opens up new alleyways and avenues for people to be attacked and trolled. And as someone who's spent a lot of their academic career studying trolling, it has a profound effect on people's mental health. And it really contributes to the spiral of silence by, especially if it's mass trolling, giving the impression that your opinions are in the minority unpopular and that if you should say them, not only will you be uh, going against, you know, the grain, but you're also you know, a nefarious or, sorry, a rather reprehensible human being. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's these tactics too. Um, so I think there's, you know, Israel at the end of the day are very good at playing a media game. And, and, and when it comes to lying about their actions in Palestine, whilst also successfully marginalizing the ability of Palestinians to get their narrative out, it just means that Western media ultimately relies heavily on what Israel is saying. Uh, And I think that's, I would say, the major structural issue. Let's talk about this in relation to the hospital that was bombed last night. Um, So this happened about, what? 7.30. right. About 16 hours ago, um, a a bomb was dropped um, on a hospital that I cannot pronounce, I'm afraid. Um, Thank you. It was a refuge um, for many people that were seeking shelter. There were also very many injured people there. Um, And the first reports that came out were that 300 people had been killed and then 500 and then 800. Now, the Israeli um, defense force actually claimed, took claim over the attack initially. They posted on uh, the IDF Arabic page that it was um, a form of euthanasia. Uh, for the people in the hospital. Um, also a spokesperson for Netanyahu, his quote-unquote content creator, which is another sort of propagandist claim that's being debunked, uh, posted in minutes after the bomb going off, bomb being dropped, um, that it was the Israelis who had done it. The Palestinian doctors who held a press conference surrounded by the bodies of the dead uh, said that it was an Israeli airstrike. And then, I mean, it took, what, about two hours for the story to start to change. Mm. And it became that it was um, an intercepted, not even that, no, sorry. It became that it was a misfired jihadi Palestinian jihad rocket. And the Israelis said that they were going to provide evidence. Um, They started releasing videos that had the wrong timestamps on them. They started releasing videos that were actually from 2022. They started releasing, uh, this morning they then released um, a recording uh, of a a cell phone uh, conversation that they intercepted uh, allegedly, talking in great specific detail about how that was a misfired rocket. Um, One journalist at a press conference with the IDF said, how are we meant to trust this given your history? And the IDF spokesperson essentially said, yes, no, we know, yes, we have lied in the past, but now we're not, you know, what are you, you know, this is about credibility. We wouldn't lie about this. Um, And what we have seen is a massive uh, pivot, 180 degree pivot from mainstream media. The New York Times edited their headlines three times over a few hours 
to reflect the changes um, to even some of the most prominent uh, pro-Palestine voices in the United Kingdom, such as Owen Jones, having to go because of journalistic integrity. Now, I can't I can't comment on this. We're not we're now not sure of who did it. And it's like, well, the Israelis told the hospital to evacuate because they were going to bomb it. And then a massive bomb was dropped on it. And now we're not sure. I mean, it is astonishing what they get away with. That was a long intro. But if you want to riff on that. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you know, I think to make it even more complicated, you mentioned the the account, the IDF saying, you know, we, we euthanized, but that was actually a fake account to make it even more complicated. However, um, Hanania Naftali, who is a, who is a prominent and well-connected Israeli propagandist, he initially claimed that, yeah, it was an Israeli strike. Uh, and now he's walked back on that, given, given, you know, what the rest of the Israeli establishment have been saying about the attack. But, you know, I think it doesn't, at the end of the day, when it's a human tragedy, but what this does, the muddying the waters of the debate, you know, hopefully we'll know exactly what happened at some point soon, but the only person that benefits from muddying the waters of the debate is Israel, right? Palestinians don't benefit from muddying the waters and muddying the waters is a tactic, you know? I mean, you mentioned yourself when the, the news broke that this hospital had been targeted by Israel. You know, I think there's three or four different and incorrect videos were shared by well-connected Israelis, including the Israel account, which is run by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Now, why would these official Israel accounts be just sharing unverified, unsubstantiated, uncorroborated videos? They're literally undermining their own argument later on, or their so-called technical argument that this must have been an Islamic jihad, right? So not only are they muddying the waters, they're also undermining their own credibility. But crucially, this muddying the waters is, is beneficial to them because what it means, again, is that there's doubt. There's doubt about uh, what happened. And in this case, the event, if it transpires that 500 people, 300 people uh, were killed by a deliberate Israeli attack on a hospital, as you can see, the outcome of that has already been that there's been massive protests around the world. Joe Biden has basically been disinvited from his trip to the Middle East because this will mobilize public opinion in a way that is genuinely problematic for, for, for the US. But if this narrative can be tempered, if it can be made ambiguous, if it can be somehow less clear that this was a, an unequivocal Israeli attack, then that kind of protest, that pressure, that political pressure will decrease, right? And muddying the waters does that, right? If, if there was, you know, just a solid narrative that this was Israel, then the implications for Israel would be catastrophic. They also know that, which would partly probably explain why they've mobilized so much effort into trying uh, putting out disinformation because it is disinformation. It was perfectly false about about you know these certain videos trying to frame it as a, a rocket. And there's other narratives that aren't even considered within this. Now the narrative is this duality. It's either this was an Israeli strike or maybe it was an Islamic jihad rocket. But no one's considered the fact maybe it was a, an Israeli interceptor rocket that misfired. Right? We know that's happened in the past where Israeli interceptor rockets have uh, landed and and killed people. So why is it just to focus on those two? You know, and I, I think those dual narratives themselves a form of propaganda. You know, like I said several times, it's the muddying of waters and uh, mm. the occupier benefits. Mm. I saw um, this morning, now doubt, because of this, doubt now being cast on the number of victims mm. um, from the explosion. People saying there's no way that it could have been 500 because it's probably a rocket mm. and thus it's going to be less. And actually remember, it's Hamas who runs the Gaza Ministry of Health who released the figures. And... It's so distressing because 
I mean, it's so distressing watching this, right? right? right. Watching gaslighting happening in real time. But yeah. I keep thinking about that image of those doctors at that press conference surrounded by all of those bodies, mm. one of them holding the body of a child mm. and just thinking, I mean, what must be going through their heads, going through their minds to see like how much footage do you have to put out in the world? Yeah before people believe you. Well, I had this conversation as well, because I was speaking to someone and they said, you know, I don't like how they frame that press conference with the baby. It's always, looks very staged and it's kind of problematic. I was like, what? yeah, but unless we're in that situation where you're literally seeing babies being murdered and, you know, you're surrounded by death, then how can you comment on what that's like? Because I can't imagine, I mean, we can, we can look this vicariously, but unless we're there, what, how awful the scale of that human tragedy was, and even the OSINT stuff, even people, you know, going, you know, forensically, and this is good through all the kind of information that's been published, you know, me, you know, someone shared a photo of the, the, the bomb site this morning, and there was literally like half a baby on one of the roofs, right? And it's just like, here we are combing through these details, and it's just like this child's corpse, and it's, you sort of lose the humanity when you're sort of engaging in this not absurd debate about who did it, but the fact that these people have died because of an explosion, but an explosion that is the product of an occupation and an apartheid state. You know, the proximate cause of all this is the occupation. And we're trying to comb very well who exactly was responsible. And all the while that, you know, there's that baby lying on a roof the next day. And, you know, the lone figures, it's not only like, you know, where's the parents was, you know, it's just, it's just the, the humanity of it. It's just awful. And, and sometimes it feels like, you know, in our quest for the truth, we're just missing you know, losing our compassion or something. I know that's not the case, but, um, but yeah, but I mean, you know, 300, 500, it's a lot of people dead. And, and the reason, you know, I mean, there's people, you know, there's also other questions to be asked. I mean, hospitals are refuges, you know, you've seen pictures of Al Shifa hospital in, in Gaza, there's hundreds of people looking in the courtyard, right? So of course I'm not a ballistics expert, but you know, an explosion in a confined space with densely packed with people is obviously going to cause damage. Maybe it's not 500. And it's not 300, um, but clearly people died. Yeah. I think it's also worth, as you said, this, this obsession with like the truth, a sort of decontextualized truth mm. doesn't, doesn't help the victims because what we do know for a fact is uh, Israel targeted at least two other hospitals over the past week. Uh, we know that thousands are dead, uh, the mo most of which in Palestine are children, um, and obviously there are deaths also on Israel's side. And I, I watched down the clip of Bassem Youssef mm. uh, this morning on Piers Morgan, which is phenomenal. I highly encourage all listeners to go out and listen to it. I will even link it in the show notes. Mm. Um, but what he was saying is, well, what do you, like, what I want to know, Piers, mm -hmm. is how will this round of violence help? <laughs> how will this round of killing Palestinians help? Because, you know, Palestinians have been being killed uh, for decades now uh, by the occupying force and it hasn't gotten rid of Hamas it hasn't helped the situation it, things have only gotten worse and quite frankly if you want to look at what if you want a world <laughs> without Hamas if you want to know what that looks like just look at the West Bank and how the Palestinians are treated there of course. I mean, so it doesn't go on so it's, it's, I mean it's revenge you know I mean they keep talking about exterminating Hamas and they've said this before but it's not going to happen the only the only way the Israelis would achieve that is by completely uh, destroying Gaza, which they might be prepared to do. 
But this latest round of violence is simply revenge because they can't, the Israelis don't want to be seen to be doing nothing. Uh, and they want to, you know, ex ex extract blood for, for the Israelis killed, right? Uh, because no logical um, tactician, I mean, every lo any tactician will know that there's no hope of actually completely wiping out Hamas. And history has told us that if you engage in this level of violence, all you're going to do is radicalize more people. You're going to strengthen oh, them. And you don't have to be genius to figure that out. So they, they know that. They can't be stupid. So what does that mean? Well, then it's simply revenge and ethnic cleansing. If they had their way, you know, get all people in Gaza into Egypt. I mean, the, the foreign minister, I think it's foreign minister, Danny Ayalon, said himself that they will build cities in Sinai and literally, you know, force march people out of Gaza. Like, that's ethnic cleansing. And he went on international television in front of Mark Lamont Hill advocating for ethnic cleansing. And what kind of person can actually go on international TV and freely talk about ethnic cleansing, apart from a person who clearly has the support of an international community who's willing to turn a blind eye to this kind of thing? I mean, it's, it's tragic, right? So this later round of violence, it's more than before in the sense that people genuinely worry this could be uh, the deep, complete depopulation of Gaza. Um, and if it's not that, then it's just revenge. I just... I just can't see a way through which geopolitically makes sense for the United States. Mm. Like, I think it's surely at some point it's going to flip and it's going to have to become, oh, Netanyahu, mad fascist, all actually acting on his own. Because if you see this through to its logical conclusion and Israel continues to commit these war crimes and displaces an entire population, which is against the um, Geneva Convention as well, um, massacring thousands more in the process. I mean, we saw the uprisings last night all over the Arab world. Right. We saw it. There are US embassies on fire, Israeli embassies targeted, people outside the White House chanting, calling um, on calling out Biden's role in this genocide. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, the Iraq war was not that long ago. And given that the revelations have continued to come out after the Iraq war, given the public is only in the past few years actually sort of been given the right to know that it was a lie. Mm -hmm. Libya, a lie. I, I just can't see a way in which this actually works out for the way. I just feel like Western powers maybe don't realize that they are not as strong as they used to be. No, they're not as strong as they used to be, but at the same time, strength is a process of maintenance, right? So strength is demonstrated by exerting it. I think US in particular is struggling. I mean, in the sense that domestically, the support for Ukraine is decreasing popularity. That's become a partisan issue. So now Republicans in the US tend to be more on the side of Russia, to speak frankly, when it comes to that. So that's putting pressure on Biden. This whole crisis in Israel is going to potentially divert attention uh, from Ukraine. Uh, and it will also put more pressure on the current uh, administration in the US to not necessarily choose a side, but potentially uh, back two horses and, and, and divide them in terms of attention and, and capability, which uh, again will contribute to, I think, a general weakening. At the same time, you know, in democracies and in the US in particular, at the moment we're seeing this absolute polarization. If Biden is not reelected, there's a Republican president, Republicans are even more staunchly in support of Israel. We have to bear in mind the polling in the US in the past week has showed in a massive increase in support for Israel, uh, even among Democrats. Maintain sta stable erupting. This might change depending on roots in the ground, but we have to bear in mind that American administrations are also very responsive to what their constituents want, especially when it comes to Israel. Uh, on a global level, yes, this is absolutely problematic because they have to 
US and, and the UK have to weigh up the concerns of their allies, which includes many Arab states, particularly in the Gulf, who, as I mentioned earlier, have disinvited Biden. So he is very aware of the potential consequences. That's why he's trying to come to the Middle East and do damage limitation, him and Anthony Blinken. But I think because of the situation in Gaza, and particularly because of the bombing last night, uh, this, the role of Middle East states is, is, is a big, a big issue. So I think the, 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 the outcome of this will be the best case scenario for the US will be a ceasefire and then a resumption of the occupation and the apartheid state, albeit with a hugely inflated and tragic death toll, unfortunately. But for that to happen, that would be, uh, there would be an admission of wrong in doing so, like in calling for a ceasefire now, at least I think this is the logic of these nutters that are making bad decisions, right? Yeah, well, like it would be an admittance of a culpability of wrong. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, I think we'd see it as that. We might see it as that as weakness, but the nature of how these politicians communicate is very much like, well, we always advocated restraint and blink and saying we, we as the US and Israel respect international law. Um, no, and so that's... it will just come out in, in those terms. I mean, we obviously know that that's nonsense, but if they are forced to backtrack, uh, and lose face, so be it. And they will, they will do that if necessary. You know, Biden's lost face several times, especially in the Middle East, you know, not least with Saudi Arabia. He promised he would never go to Saudi Arabia after Jamal Khashoggi was killed. And yet there he is making deals with MBS because he's worried that high gas prices in the U.S. are going to cost him an election. So, you know, we have to bear these things in mind. This is, this is the nature of politics. But a long-term but, solution, I mean, you know, this is the perennial issue. But would Netanyahu be willing to lose face? Oh, good question. I mean, Netanyahu is also, this, this is an interesting issue on the domestic level. There's, I think, overwhelming support for retaliation against, I don't like to say retaliation, actually, um, continued uh, escalation in Gaza by Israelis, but Netanyahu is also very unpopular. We also know that what might be perceived as successful acts of war can increase a popula uh, po politician's popularity. We saw that with Margaret Thatcher after the Falklands. She was record levels of unpopularity. And then after the Falklands, her popularity shot up. Uh, and we also know that, you know, the right wing, I mean, Netanyahu kind of scraped through anyway in terms of his election. Uh, but the extreme right in Israel is very powerful at the moment. And the extreme right will be the ones who will be driving the continued uh, conflict in the region. So I think it doesn't matter what, whether Netanyahu is at the helm or not, if you've got this kind of search to the right in Israel, whoever they end up choosing or being the kingmakers for is going to be someone who probably advocates for an incredibly harsh, violent position towards Palestinians. So I suppose this is, this is the thing, like if if politics is becoming sort of increasingly ideological in its stance, and that's what we're seeing with the you know polarization mm. around the world, and if Netanyahu or another far right extreme leader uh, who does not want to hold any kind of mercy towards Palestine comes into power and keeps pushing that agenda, it just makes that's what I mean in terms of this long term vision for the United States and Israel and and how this will play out geopolitically. Because I, you know. At what point does the United States break ties with that ally to, re to with that ally to really save face? Mm. Well, I know this is an exceptional time, but the U.S. has not done that in history. Um, I think if there was, if there's a ground invasion into Gaza, uh, which is looking likely, if that were to happen, if there was another front opened up by Hezbollah in northern Israel, um, I think there might come a point where the U.S. has to be more 
uh, forthright in its condemnation of what Israel does. I don't think it means abandoning Israel as an ally, but at some point they might have to consider that this solution, the solution that they thought would help, which is these kind of non-consensual normalization agreements with the Gulf states who have ignored their populations to make these, aren't a solution to what's going on in Israel. In fact, these attempts at peacemaking through normalization with Arab states have probably been one of the causes of this latest escalation in violence. So they know that their method is not necessarily going to work. But honestly, I don't see it. I, I, see, I don't necessarily see them trying to abandon their support for Israel as much as that would be uh, a really great thing because without that support, Israel would not be continuing down its current trajectory. Um, yeah. But maybe I'm being very pessimistic, but I think in this case, I'm, I'm basing my analysis on past behavior. No, I think you're totally right. And just a few hours ago, uh, Biden gave Netanyahu a big hug when he got off the plane. So no, I think you're totally right. But what will pan out from this is very difficult to establish. Yeah, yeah. I know you have to go. Um, before you do, my final question sure. for you is, who would you like to platform? Oh, I'd like to platform a few people. I, I think Marwa Fataf does good. She uh, is a Palestinian activist living in Germany. Um, and she is she works for Access Now, which is a digital rights NGO. She does a lot of great work around Palestine in general, but in particular about Israel's use of digital technology. Um, for a very contemporary recommendation too, I recommend Professor Beverly Milton Edwards, who wrote a book on Hamas, uh, if people are interested in that. Ilan Pape, a prominent... Uh, Israeli historian who's been incredibly uh, critical of Israel's occupation and has uh, written several books about that. He's excellent. Um, excellent. Yeah, there's some names I can think of more if you're interested, but I can just send you them. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.